It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for subscribing as well. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Uh, all of that helps. I do appreciate it. Uh, I also appreciate patrons such as Daniel, Jocelyn, Gary, Trent, Marlon, Nick, Lori, Catherine, Monica, and Les. Thank you very much for becoming patrons of the program. Uh, they did so by going to thepetecalendarshow.com. And uh, there's a link up at the top that says exclusive content for patrons and you click on that it takes you to the patreon page and uh then you sign up and you get uh, access to exclusive content like tonight we're doing our live stream event uh and uh you get some swag you get some well i mean i sent out a magnet to all of the patrons as well uh, at the end of the year and i send out uh, bumper stickers and we're working on some new material or uh, merchandise so i'm always working on new material but new merchandise as well uh so stay tuned for that again that's at thepetecalendarshow.com um so the first thing that I need to get to is the news that broke uh, yesterday afternoon that Rush Limbaugh died. Uh, so I'm going to get to that. And uh, then I'm going to talk a little bit about this article that ran in The Atlantic uh, about Governor Roy Cooper. So uh, all of that's on deck. Stay tuned. First, uh, head on over to Growers Hemp. If you've uh, been interested in trying a CBD product, but you don't know the first thing about CBD, what it is and all of that, uh, go to Growers Hemp. Okay, these are North Carolina farmers. I know them. One of them is, full disclosure, my brother-in-law. And he started up this uh, company. He's got a farm. Farm. He and his uh, farmer friends down east of Charlotte, and uh, they said, you know what, why don't we control this whole process from seed all the way to shelf? And they want to help you. If you got questions about hemp and CBD, they want to help you, and they want to help you on your wellness journey. That's essentially their business model. They help you, and then their family farms benefit. That's that's the business model. So uh, go to their website, Growers Hemp. And if you do, by the way, you can pick up some of the extract. I take a couple of these drops uh, before I go to bed every night. But they also have other uh, items like the balm, the B-A-L-M. I should spell this out because someone, uh, Monica, wrote me uh, a couple days ago and said every time she hears me say the balm, she thinks I'm saying the bong. <laughs> That's not the case at all. This is not marijuana, people. It's hemp. Okay, uh, so the balm, it's a topical, it's a salve, and uh, you can put it on, you know, your skin, you rub it into like your hips or your backs, uh, your hands, your feet, uh, whatever's hurting you, try the balm, and if you go to growershemp.com, you can get one when you buy one, they're doing a Valentine's Day Buy one, get one discount. It's the entire month. Uh, so buy one, get one for free. The bomb at growershemp.com. And as always, here's the disclaimer. As with all CBD products, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And nothing that I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Growershemp.com from North Carolina Farmers to your home. Growers Hemp, it's about the hemp and not the hype. So I guess I should start off by first saying I would not be doing this right now if not for 
Rush Limbaugh. And I've always recognized that. And I'm not sure there's anybody that works in radio, talk radio, or now I guess even podcasting. Um, If you are in this world, particularly political, conservative political, but not even really just conservative anymore, um, you owe something to Rush Limbaugh. And as much as that might anger some folks (laughs) who did not like Rush Limbaugh, uh, it's true. It really is. Uh, He developed a model that was often imitated, but, you know, never replicated because he was a one of a kind talent. Um, And he would say that, right? He said talent on loan from God. So he always understood. And I don't know why, like his I always got his sense of humor. I did. I, I always understood when he was making jokes about things and he was being, uh, he, you know, in, in a particular delivery, he may have been more dry than not. And I, I understood him to be cracking jokes. And uh, he recognized in politics, just as in all aspects of life, one of man's most potent weapons against uh, his fellow man is ridicule, is mockery. And he employed it. And he would often say that they, the left hates nothing more than to be mocked. They, and he's right. And that's because, you know, they're people and most people don't appreciate it. Now, you can uh, do some self-deprecating humor and such, but if you are the target for mockery, uh, that's different. But a lot of people, particularly in politics, they're not even, uh, they don't even like to be the butt of a joke let alone be mocked. And uh, Limbaugh would, you know, highlight the absurd by being absurd. That's what he would say. He would highlight the absurd by being absurd. And this was how he made issues understandable for people who are not following politics all the time. Of course, when he was entertaining, that made people want to stick around. And the longer they stuck around, the more they learned about politics, right? Um, And that's, look, that's why I say, and I always have. This is my philosophy going into this, which into this uh, line of work was always be entertaining and informative, at least one of the two. If you can be both, but you got to be at least one of the two because content is king. People will support content that they appreciate. And uh, that's one of the things I think that a lot of people thought that they could uh, that they could imitate with Limbaugh, that for some reason, oh, well, we'll just talk about politics and policy, and uh, we'll have these big audiences as well. And no, you won't. <laughs> because, I mean, part of it is that he was the first. So there's a lot of benefit that comes from that. There, There is. There's a lot of benefit that comes from being the first. But he was also uniquely qualified and talented to do the job that he did. And uh, he was an entertainer. In fact, uh, you read his book, his very first book, he says that right at the beginning. He's an entertainer. And I've always understood what he meant by that. I am as well. I mean, yes, I try to uh, to bring you know, policy and discussions and topics and guests and such that are interesting and important. But at the end of the day, it's got to be entertaining. Nobody's going to listen to somebody just drone on like the teacher uh, Ben Stein in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Nobody wants that, right? Nobody wants to go to class and have that kind of a teacher. And I recognize, more so than with radio, podcasting requires me to be entertaining at some level, right? I've got to be. I mean, yes, I can be informative, but if I'm delivering it in a way that you don't want to listen to what I'm saying, you won't. (laughs) And I will have no success doing this. 
So I recognize and I always understood what Limbaugh meant. So the first time that I actually ever heard Rush Limbaugh was with my brother, my older brother, in his car. I don't remember which car it was. It may have been his old... Well, we got it from Grandpa. It was a hand-me-down. And uh, what was it? A Chevy Malibu. <laughs> this tank of a car. And uh, I think it, it might have been that or... Yeah, I think it was that. Because I want to say I was in like junior high or high school. And I don't remember all of the details. It was so long ago. And uh, I don't remember why we were at this particular job site. Because again, I was, I don't know, 8th grade, ninth grade. My brother was a couple years is a couple years older than me. He's three years older or two years older, but three years in school. So, uh, like by the time I got to high school, he was in college. So I don't remember. He may have been home that summer from college or something. I don't remember. But the point is, we were on a job site because my dad had worked for this company, and I guess they bought a building. Like I said, I don't remember all of the details, but they bought a building, and it was like um, I want to say. Well, I mean, just from my memory, it was about seven. 15 billion square feet, I think is what it was, is a massive building. It was filled with cubicles and they wanted us to take them all apart. <laughs> so <laughs> this is what we did. I don't remember the size of it. It seemed like it was huge. Although I, I want to say it took us only like two days or so to tear it all down. We took all we, and we had to, you know, unscrew all of this stuff, unbolt everything and take down all of the um, all of the cubicles so they could redo the space. And so on our lunch break, we went out and got some lunch and I was in the car. And that's the first time I remember listening to Limbaugh. And the first bit that I ever remember him doing was something like it was an environmentalist update or something. And he's got some chainsaw going in the background <laughs> and he's like laughing maniacally as he's doing this environmentalist update. And for a kid whose only exposure to the environmentalist movement was that we would go out to the creek behind our high school and clean it of all of the garbage that got thrown into it. And, you know, they were saying this is going to solve global warming on Earth Day. We all went out there and, you know, uh, uh, cleaned up the creek. That was like I had never heard another argument against this environmentalism this global warming argument. I'd never heard it. And uh, I got his books uh, a couple of years later. This was, I don't know, because I probably would have been, you know, early 90s maybe. And then I got his book, uh, the first one, uh, The Way Things Ought to Be, and I read his book. And these were arguments that were presented in digestible uh, chapter lengths, right? And they weren't, it, it wasn't intimidating and it wasn't in, it was, it was written in a way that I could understand. It was very approachable. And so I read that book and then, uh, I want to say somebody got me, it might've been my dad bought me the sequel at some point for a Christmas present. Uh, it was a sequel or the, yeah, the see, I told you so book, which I did not find actually to be as good as the first. I preferred his, uh, his first book. Uh, but that was the first time. Now, I had grown up listening to spoken word format radio and liked it. I always had liked it. And, uh, you know, I grew up, my dad uh, would make these commutes into the city, into New York City from Long Island. It was like 50 miles each way, and he would drive. And so he was always listening to WNYC, the NPR affiliate. And this was, you know, 80s and into the 90s. And so I don't know what their politics was. I assume it was left of center, but they had, you know, you'd listen to Morning Edition, All Things Considered and all this. 
And uh, so on the rare occasion when we would ride around with dad, we would hear, you know, NPR programming. But also um, there was a program that then would run in the evenings called originally it was called like small things considered, (laughs) which was for kids. It was all things considered, but for kids, it was produced by kids. And they had like these kids songs and parodies and stuff and jokes and stories, whatever. Um, And then they changed it to kids America. I believe it was uh, what they called it. And uh, me and my two younger sisters, we loved it. We loved listening to that. And you layer that into, I had a, uh, a couple classes with a teacher, Ms. Roman was her name, in both fourth and fifth grade. And one of her things, because I guess she loved current events, but it was also a good way to get us to read and uh, uh, sort of reinterpret what we were reading. And uh, so she would have us do current events, do clippings out of, out of the newspaper, and then uh, do a rewrite and then read them. If we wanted to, we could read them to the class. And I would do that. And then uh, go back even further in like third grade, or probably even first grade, I would read stories in front of the class. So I've always liked doing this. I was in theater. I was in play productions and such. And so I've always liked doing it. So I was always attracted to the spoken word. Um, and... I also wrote a lot in the school papers, so because I love to write stuff, and I would do these school uh, productions. So my sisters and I, we would put on plays, puppet shows for my parents and the neighborhood uh, moms and dads and stuff. Oh, it was loads of fun when we were kids. They thought it was adorable. Um, you know, speaking of adorable, if you're looking for an adorable house, but you haven't found it yet, then let me give you a phone number for Rowena Patton. Her number, 333-4483. That's 828-333-4483. Mountainhomehunt.com. That's the website. Mountainhomehunt.com. And she will find you your adorable home in the mountains. She is the official Homes for Heroes agent in Asheville. This is a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from the realtor commissions. This goes to, it's available to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military. So veterans, active duty, retirees, um, you can keep more of your own money. She's given back about $800,000 so far to folks in these five professions. So give her a call, 333-4483. Put her and her all-star powerhouse team to work for you 333-4483, give her a call, and then start packing. So uh, I, so I'm kind of running through sort of the, all of this stuff in my life was kind of building to this one career path. And I had no idea uh, that this kind of uh, work was even available. I mean, the idea that you could just sit down, read current events, and and then opine about them and talk about them, I mean... It's it's an amazing world to live in that I can do this that I do and I and I owe that to Rush Limbaugh and I've always understood that even if I don't agree with every take that he has throughout the years and he would tell you not that I know him but he would say that's fine he's right and I'm wrong right <laughs> he would say that but it doesn't it's okay for us to disagree on stuff I'm okay with that in fact I like some of the ways that he would handle his callers they would call in and be disagreeable to him and. He didn't take it personally, nor should he. I mean, unless you're attacking him personally, obviously. So I'd always um, I'd always listened to radio. I'd always done, you know, spoken word format. I listened to spoken word format. I liked it. Uh, I always uh, was doing current events, reading the newspaper. I read, you know, cartoons, the political cartoons and stuff. Um, and then, you know, I'd worked on the school newspapers all the way from, you know, junior high into high school, into college. And then in college, I had signed up to be an English major. I was going to 
Uh, I didn't even really want to be in college. I just wanted to go move to Montana and write the great American novel. Yeah, I mean, you've got to set your sights high, right? I was going to move to Montana, get a cabin, write the next great American novel, and that was my career path. And, of course, <laughs> the guidance counselors were like, that is not advisable. We do not recommend you do that. Uh, my parents were like, you need to go to college. And so, uh, and then, of course, the Ted Kaczynski thing happened, and I was like, okay, maybe I should not go off uh, to a cabin in Montana. And, by the way, I wanted to live in Montana because I had done a school uh, state research paper on montana in like fifth grade and i just knew a lot about montana so i just wanted to move there and then of course kaczynski the unabomber gets busted and i'm like okay i'm not going to do that i'm going to college so i went to college signed up as an english major because i still have this idea i'm going to do this and i just did not like the english uh curriculum i didn't i did not like being told uh that there were all these ways to and there was correct ways to think about what someone was saying in a book right? Here's the author. Here's the book. What do you think it means, Pete? I would tell them what I thought it means. And I'm like, that's wrong. Like, well, that's what I thought it meant. That's what I got out of it. And I never liked that approach. I never liked being told that I'm wrong, you might say. That's why I got into journalism. (laughs) So actually, it's because there was a a friend of mine in college said, Pete, there's a there's this mass comm, mass communication broadcast track. You should totally do that. And they only require one science class as the requirement. And, uh, and that was low. That was fewer requirements for science than the um, uh, than the English track. And so, yes, I moved over to mass comm and I went mass comm broadcast uh, while there. I learned, you know, television stuff. And then we started up uh, the radio station, although it was on the cable access campus only. Because the, well, I may have angered the president of the college at the time when I was writing as a columnist for the school paper. I kind of angered him. And so he did not want to give us a stick. He did not want to give us a radio signal because <laughs> he didn't want it being broadcast out beyond the campus confines. So he just, so they had a, uh, a campus wide closed circuit cable channel. And so we broadcast on that. W I N R was the, uh, the call letters. Winthrop Radio, W-I-N-R, Winner Radio. And uh, anyway, so, you know, played some music and that was it. But that was where I first got to kind of play DJ and it was fun. Um, And I switched to MassCom Broadcast and then I got a job at an NPR affiliate in Charlotte mailing people coffee mugs. And really it was there working in the news talk space at an NPR affiliate that I really wanted to do this. This is what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be a reporter. And... um. They would not hire me. I had no experience. They had a job opening at that affiliate, but I had no experience. So they hired somebody else. And I said, I got to get experience. So I went back down to Rock Hill, got a job at uh, the Rock Hill Hill radio station, WRHI. Worked there for about two years where my meteoric rise through the ranks just happened to coincide with everybody else quitting. And I was the last one standing and I became the news director because, again, there wasn't anybody else there. Um, And then I applied for and got a job at WBT in Charlotte. But until I had worked at WRHI, I had never worked at a station or even listened to Rush Limbaugh, except for that day in the car with my brother. That was it. And um, I, I could not tell you any of the stuff that happened between on the Limbaugh show you know, in the 90s, except I do remember one night uh, in 94 when I had gotten, uh, I'd gotten a gig working for the, the local paper, the Charlotte Observer, I think it was the York Observer, their satellite uh, paper down in York County, just south of the border in South Carolina. And 
uh, I ran numbers for them on election night. And I remember listening to, I guess it was probably WBT in Charlotte, listening to the election returns coming in because it was the Republican Revolution that night. And it was the first time that I remember being excited or happy, I should say, about a political win, about, you know, some election result making me happy. And I don't even know why, like I look back on it now and I don't even really know why. It was just, I knew that this was different and something had changed. Does that revolution happen without Rush Limbaugh? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, that's when I started listening to Limbaugh, really, was when I was working at uh, in the, uh, the uh, news talk station. And he, he helped create a, uh, an environment where you could hear conservatism and a limited government philosophy and it was expressed in an approachable way, and it was a way that resonated with me. Ben Dominich, uh, who was the founder of The Federalist, he had a, a really good piece, I thought, at the New York Post, um, a write-up called Appreciation, Rush Limbaugh, Remade Talk Radio and Modern Conservatism. And for more than 30 years, Limbaugh sat down and talked to Americans about America. Across the country, in pickup trucks, roadside diners, quiet cubicles where listeners were obliged to wear headphones lest they offend, his rich baritone rolled out of the air, and it spoke the truth. Rush Limbaugh changed the course of American history. Without him, the conservative movement in the country would be fundamentally different today. For this, the left cursed him, and some on the right as well. But in the end, he beat them back time and again. As a storyteller, Limbaugh was incomparable, gifted with a cadence and an awareness of story beats, which gave him an incredible ability to weave narratives together. He could take a small local anecdote from the back of a newspaper and tell you how it connected to the stories of national import you saw on the front page. His impact on the world of media is immeasurable. There is no conservative mass media without Limbaugh. And there's no, probably no Joe Rogan either. Before his rise indicated the appetite of people across the country for his message, conservative media was almost entirely written for the intellectuals and the policymakers, not the working man. Rush was different. He was irreverent. He was compelling. And above all, he had fun doing what he did. Bill Buckley was smart, but nobody's dad played him on the radio while they were putting up houses, making pizzas, or cleaning up the shop. They played Rush Limbaugh. And by the way, I saw this quote pulled. Some uh, other uh, conservative you know, writer pulled this quote out of this piece and said, well, maybe that was the problem, that, that we weren't listening to Buckley. We were listening to Rush. He gave an entire generation of Americans, Dominic writes, gave us an entire generation of Americans. It gave them a way to think and talk about politics and the meaning of America and a vocabulary for pushing back against what he believed to be and we now know to be a deeply anti-American and aggressively totalitarian left. Without Rush, there's no Republican Revolution of 94, as I said. There's probably no Tea Party and there's probably no Donald Trump. He was right about his favorite subject, though. Whatever you think of Limbaugh, he was right about his favorite subject, which was America. Limbaugh understood that what drew people to conservatism has less to do with words in musty old books and more to do with the intrinsic beliefs that reside in the hearts of all patriotic Americans. He understood that because he believed it himself. And how good was he? You knew how good he was when you sat in the driveway 
at home, ignition off, radio still on, and you wanted to hear the rest of what he had to say. He was that good. That's what we in the radio industry, by the way, call a driveway moment. It is the highest form of praise that you can ever give somebody in this line of work. That what you were saying on the air literally made them stop what they were doing to listen, and they could not even get out of the car to go home and see their family. After Think about that, right? You're at work all day, you come home, you, you, you're pulling in the driveway, you got you know kids and spouse inside, and you're going to sit there for an extra few minutes just to hear the rest of what this person has to say. It's the highest form of flattery that a radio person can get. Now, here's uh, some flattery for you. The best equipment rental store two straight years as voted by the readers in the Mountain Express poll is General Equipment Rental. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. They are at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road, so really easy to get to, super convenient, and family-owned and operated for three generations. Uh, And uh, I will tell you uh, that they reached out to me. They wanted to be sponsors of the show they wanted to talk with you they wanted me to convey to you what they uh, the service they provide and they want to help support the show to keep it going keep it on the air and so uh, if you are in the uh, market for some new equipment yard equipment or uh, really you know power tools and especially the yard equipment honda and husqvarna they are your official licensed husqvarna and honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider So if you're in the market for anything like that, please go to General Equipment Rental if you are in the market for a a rental. So like earth mover or power saws, uh, stuff like, you know, tillers and mowers and pressure washers and generators. Head on over to General Equipment Rental. They will help you out. And as I mentioned, they're the official licensed uh, sales and service provider, which means they know these models. They know the tools and uh, they can tell you how they all work. And they're going to know the difference between last year's model and this year's model improvements that might have been made. And if anything ever goes wrong with it, you need it tuned up or something, you bring it right back to them and they know those machines inside and out. General Equipment Rental, generalrents.com is the website. That's generalrents.com. And think outside your toolbox. Now, uh, not everybody is so uh, sad on the right. I mean, the left is, obviously. The left is rejoicing at the death of Rush Limbaugh, which, of course, these are the people that are demanding unity. These are the folks who uh, tell us that we should turn over our health care to them, right? (laughs) They're saying that uh, you could totally trust them to manage the health system (laughs) while while they dance on the grave of a person they don't like. Uh, and they didn't uh, like his politics, right? Uh, So I'm sure there's something to that. But there are a lot of people on the right who are not happy with Limbaugh. And uh, they, these there, yes, there are the never Trumpers and such. Uh, but there are a lot of people on the right, not a lot, but there are some people, I guess, on the right who think that Limbaugh, um, that he, he could have stopped Trump and he didn't. And um, I think, and I'm not sure, I'm just, I mean, just listening to Limbaugh over the years, I think he kind of uh, got jaded about being used by politicians. I do. I think he kind of got a bit cynical about it. I remember after, was it after Romney's loss? And he just came on the air and he was, he was saying something to the effect of like he was tired of carrying the water for like the GOP establishment, right? Uh, and, you know, like, cause this is, this is what we get. 
that's the kind of campaign we get. He was just so frustrated. So I think he kind of got jaded uh, about how, and, and it's probably why he doesn't, didn't have a lot of uh, politicians and elected officials on his program. Um, and he did say, I like one of the things I've always kind of kept in mind about why he did not uh, book a lot of guests on his radio show. He says the guests are not invested in the success of your show. Because if your show goes under because you're booking guests that the audience doesn't like uh, or are not, you know, compelling or entertaining or informative or whatever, you're bringing these guests on and uh, nobody's listening to your show because of it. And then you get fired. The guest still has their job. Right. They just lost. They just lost, you know, the opportunity to go on a radio show. Um, And so I've, I've always kept that in mind. And I try to balance having guests with not having guests. So. Uh, here's one fellow. His name is David Mastio. He is the deputy editorial page editor of USA Today. He says he was a ditto head, grew up a ditto head since high school. He said Limbaugh actually read one of his columns on the air. And he said, the fact is, if you talk to any conservative under the age of 50 uh, and they tell you that they were not shaped by Limbaugh, they're either embarrassed to admit it or they're unaware of how much Rush shaped the conservative world that they inhabit. That's true. Okay, nobody since William F. Buckley had been as influential a gateway drug to conservatism, except maybe George Will in the Wall Street Journal editorial page. But Rush stood above them all. Buckley built the institutions of the conservative movement, but most notably the National Review. George Will, yeah, he had the Washington Post, and he had ABC News behind him, and the Wall Street Journal, yeah, it was a national paper, but they were all company men. Rush was a regular guy with a microphone. His infectious curiosity and incandescent sense of humor brought him an audience in the tens of millions. He was an entry point to the world of conservatives' ideas and voices with increasing sophistication. Right, like the Rush Revere books that he wrote for the kids. It was a great series. Um, the way to make history approachable and entertaining Right. He had a way of making these complex ideas understandable, as he would say. And when you do that, um, you then get people curious about this philosophy and they then can go self-educate, obviously. And they can get into the, you know, the denser, you know, really you know, philosophical writings of these thinkers and such. But how do you get somebody interested in the first place? You got to you find something that just that just hooks them, you know, and you never know what that topic is going to be. And that's why he was always doing all these different topics and always bringing it back to conservatism and the the ideas of conservatism. November 2015, this fellow writes at USA Today, when the Republican presidential primary was kind of still up in the air, Limbaugh's powers then were immense. He could get any Republican leader or conservative thinker on the phone in a minute. He had an army of ditto heads, just like I had been, and he had 30 years of affection from everywhere in the conservative world for his role as the happy warrior for the right on cause after cause. If Rush had stood up at that moment and said no to to Trump, um, there's a chance that the last four years of history would have been different. I disagree with this, by the way. Um, who can say? I, mean, I disagree. I, I, I don't think that Limbaugh could have actually convinced everybody to vote against Donald Trump. I don't think that that could happen. And and I think there were people that just that liked Trump too much. And I don't know what Limbaugh's thought process behind it was, but it always seemed to me to be um, that Limbaugh was not at first very comfortable with sort of defending Trump on all things. And I think he became more supportive of Trump during the campaign. Um, But that was just, you know, 
that's just me listening. I have no idea. Um, if Russia had stood up and said, no, he's, uh, there's a chance the last four years would have been different. Who can say what would have happened? But no voice on the right had a better chance of rallying voters around a principled conservative instead of a reality TV huckster who said he paid to have the Clintons come to his wedding. Again, uh, would that conservative have won? Would that conservative have beaten Hillary Clinton? Rush could have wielded the power of satire to tear Trump down with a power that no voice in the mainstream media could match. Instead, Limbaugh spent his last years embracing an unprincipled huckster and betraying the conservative ideal he taught me to love. I am not sorry to see that end. It was a tragedy. Okay, so you got people, these these never-Trumpers, that um, are upset with Rush because of that. And look, I'll tell you, I remember hearing what he changed his slogan because he would always say... Um, the Advanced Institute for Conservative Ideas, right? I think that's what, yeah, the Limbaugh Institute for Advanced Studies of Conservative Ideas. And then he changed it during the 2016 election cycle to something like Advanced Studies of Beating the Left or something. And I thought, why did you do that? Why did you change that branding? It just sounded clunky to me and awkward. And... I think that was him trying to lend support to Trumpism for whatever reason. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Look, I've, I've always said Donald Trump reminds me of a talk show host. And that's why I say I don't think you have a Donald Trump without a Rush Limbaugh. Because there are so many people that base their entire shtick, whether they are on the air <laughs> or not, uh, off a of Limbaugh. They do. I mean, even like I do, I recognize this. I, I am an amalgamation of things that I've heard other hosts do over the course of my career, things that I liked, things that stuck. Um, there's an old afternoon drive duo down in Charlotte. They were on air for like not even three years, I think. And uh, whenever you hear me say, you know, the, doing the bumper music intros, you know, that's Steely Dan, like that's what they would do. And it was a riff off of Limbaugh who would do that when the music was coming in from a break, he would identify the song <laughs> like that. Like he was still an FM disc jockey and it just became a thing. And yeah, it's, I don't know why these things become things, but um, they do. They're powerful. The human voice is very powerful. Stories are very powerful. Connecting with hosts is very powerful. Uh, Kurt Schlichter, who I've interviewed um, in the past, and um, uh, he's a writer at townhall.com, and he's actually done some fill-in work as a radio host. And uh, it's one of the things, really, when you talk to people and then they, they try to do the fill-in work as a host and they realize how difficult it is. And I would, I would also say that filling in as a, as a radio host is more difficult, I have found, than actually hosting your own show. If it's your show, it's your show. If you're filling in for someone else, then you're there for like a day or two. You got to learn their clock, their rhythms. You got to learn their producer, their callers. And it's just a different kind of thing. And you know, it's only going to be a day or two. So it's just different. It's harder. Uh, and if you're working off site remotely, it's even harder than that. So, um, so Schlichter writes he, that he was a conservative already, but he was kind of on his own. And lots of people were millions of people thought that they were the only ones who thought like they did. And, for people that are my age, I'm Gen X, I'm 47, um, I don't remember a time in my life when there wasn't conservative media. But for people who are just a little bit older than me, they do. And uh, he calls it the conservative diaspora. <laughs> so it was just this, uh, just 
nothing out there to consume from a media perspective. Um, being a conservative meant you waited for the National Review, maybe the American Spectator to show up in your mailbox, and that was it. That was the whole conservative media. You, he says, you social media conservatives are spoiled. And conservatism was still nice. See, nice worked for Ronald Reagan, but he had a spine of steel. Nice did not work for George H.W. Bush. He would dive bomb a Japanese destroyer and send me and half a million others off to war, but get into an undignified political brawl? Oh, well, I never. And what happened? He got pummeled by Clinton. But Rush was not interested in submission. He was interested in conservatism, raw and undiluted, and he gathered us together and demonstrated that we were not alone. You're also not alone in searching out a good mattress, okay? So if you are looking for a mattress, I've got the solution for you. It's Mattress Man. This is where Christy and I got our mattress. It's a king-size memory foam. We love it, and uh, we are thinking about upgrading at some point. I shouldn't say upgrading. This is a great mattress. It, it, we're thinking about getting another mattress, uh, maybe moving this one off into the guest room and getting one of the adjustable base ones in the future when we move into our new house. We're not going to get it before we move because I'm not moving two beds, okay? Now, what's nice about Mattress Man is they got local five-star delivery. So when I buy the mattress, I'll just give them my address, and then they bring it, they set the whole thing up, and they do it really, really quickly and well. Like I said, five-star local delivery service. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee, uh, and they have four stores in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville, but they do ship nationwide. So go to their website, mattressmanstores.com, or go to the stores and check out all the deals that they've got, like the free box spring with the purchase of the Biltmore mattress uh, collection. Uh, They also have free adjustable bases, and uh, with the purchase of select mattresses, You can raise the head and the feet. They get zero gravity settings and such. All of this extended with the President's Day sale and triple zero financing deals going on. Zero down, zero APR for 24 months and zero payments for 90 days. Go to mattressmanstores.com or go to the stores and let the sleep consultants at Mattress Man help you pick the right mattress. That's Mattress Man. Experience the difference. Mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. So Kurt Schlichter, writing at townhall.com, says, My friend Andrew Breitbart, the other great non-governmental conservative visionary of the last 50 years, wrote about how he was converted and inspired by Rush Limbaugh. That's the importance of Rush to our movement. He generates conservatives out of liberals and moderates just by talking to them like they're adults. But while freedom and the Constitution sell themselves... Don't underestimate Rush's technical skills as an entertainer. He says, Today I occasionally substitute for incredible radio hosts like Hugh Hewitt and Larry O'Connor and Pete Callender. No, I'm kidding. He doesn't... uh doesn't say that. He says, Every conservative host traces his lineage to Rush. And doing that job gives you an appreciation of what it takes and what Rush does. You stare at that mic looming in front of your face and you realize you got 11 minutes until the next hard break to fill with coherent thoughts that'll keep hands off the dial. But Rush has done that for decades, making it look easy. It's not. And without the crutch of guests, it's all him. He goes on to say later in this piece that people say there would be no Trump without Rush, but it's more than that. There would be no conservatism without him. Our movement could have been strangled in the cradle, but Rush nurtured and grew it off in what had been the abandoned wasteland of AM radio where the smart set never bothered to venture. 
He started in the three network area uh, um, uh, era, rather. So you ABC, CBS, NBC, right? That was all there was. And he single-handedly busted that liberal monopoly on discourse. Rush ignored the gatekeepers and simply tore down the whole gate. This is another thing that people don't really understand. And this is in my lifetime. I do remember this, that if you wanted news, it was all coming from the same places, basically. Right. You had newspapers that dictated coverage of the TV uh, on the TV side, on the evening news side. And they were all singing off the same playbook or hymnal singing. They're all yeah, playing the same playbook. Yeah. OK, whatever. They were all doing the same stories. It was one message. And look, there are pros and cons to that because people look back on that fondly and they say, oh, we were all united and we all had the same understanding of of policy and what was true and all this. And yeah, and liberals loved it because it was their truth. <laughs> it was the it was easier for them to dominate the conversation. Then along comes Rush Limbaugh and he's generating a massive following and he's questioning some of the very premises upon which policies are built and now look at the technology now here i am podcasting away direct lineage and they tried to stop him they tried to force him off the air because they feared the unstoppable combination of unparalleled talent promoting the ideology of human freedom backed with the courage to never quit See, he could have walked away years ago he could have taken his money and retired but he, he was there every day until he until he literally could not do the job anymore and died. He did it every day. And they hated him for it. Why did he do that? Why did he work every single day? Because he loved America. And he believed, and I believe, that he was working in the cause of freedom. I believe that's what I'm doing as well. I do. Like I got into this line of work when I started working as a reporter, as a journalist, because there comes a point where you've got to like the job. You've got to love the job. If you don't, you're not going to last. You're not going to last. And 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 um, as a reporter, I knew that that was temporary. I was once I realized that I wanted to be a host, I moved uh, or I, I stayed as a reporter in order to get the credibility and the expertise and the knowledge that I needed to be a host. And um, I didn't think people would listen to, I mean, nowadays probably would, but uh, back then I was like, I'm a 22 year old kid. What do I know? So I'm going to learn stuff. I'm going to go out and I'm going to cover stuff. I'm going to be a reporter. I'm going to get credibility. I'm going to get expertise. And I've always viewed that role and this role now to be in service of the constitution. I, I do. Like, that's why I do this is because a free society requires people to act as a check on the government by the dissemination of information. And that is not just simply the who, what, where, when, how, why. It's also the the background and the philosophy that underpins some of these policies that are advanced. Right. Why government is doing certain things and who's in charge of certain programs and the like. This is what it requires. Look, this 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 form of government we have, this self-governance model, it's messy. Right? It's loud. It's chaotic. People screaming at each other. Right. Um, but that's as intended. That's the point. You don't want a, a society where everybody uniformly falls in line with whatever dictates come down from on high. I don't want to live in a society like that. Um Schlichter says his announcement that he had cancer was met by determination and faith from his friends and vile delight by his enemies on the left. Did you see a single major Democrat take to social media to wish him well? 
Keep that in mind when they invite you to disarm. Remember, they hate Rush not for anything he did, but simply for articulating American freedom effectively and without equivocation. They want him to die, literally, because they disagree with what he thinks. So how do you think they feel about you? Again, consider that the next time that a Democrat tells you to give up your guns. Consider that also the next time when they say, we want to be in charge of your health care. It's as they say, a government that is uh, big enough to give you everything you want is strong enough to take it all away. And that is the fundamental premise of uh, limited government philosophy of conservatism, right? You don't want there to be a government that is that powerful over our lives. And that's what Limbaugh fought against. And that's what I try to do as well. So rest in peace, Rush Limbaugh. Condolences to uh, all of his uh, family, his friends, the listeners. And I know what this is like, by the way, where someone passes away and you know it's like you don't know them. They're they're not a personal acquaintance of yours. But you do suffer the loss. You do feel that. Because this medium, particularly radio, um, it is such a personal medium. And... For people who spent 30 years listening to somebody in their car, it was like having that person sitting right there with them. When done right, that's what radio, that's what the spoken word format, podcasting, that's what this does. It's, a, it's an incredibly powerful uh, form of communication. Limbaugh always understood that. And so his loss today is being felt far more acutely than I think a lot of people on the left realize And so their mockery and their dancing on his grave has really profound negative effects because the people who are watching you do this right now, they're never going to forget because you're basically doing it to somebody they know and they love. And I don't know how you ever expect someone to unify with you on anything after you do that to them. Now, here's something you should do is go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus. I've been. It's a great shop, downtown Clyde on Main Street. Uh, And when you go there, ask Tim to help you put together, what, an emergency kit for your car, maybe? Have you seen some of the, uh, you know, the the ice conditions around uh, America? Uh, Could you imagine being caught out in that? Car skids off the road. Emergency people don't know where you are, can't get to you or something. Are you prepared? Do you have an, uh, an emergency kit in your vehicle? Or maybe you are looking at the uh, warmer weather coming up and you're like, oh, well, I'm a a fisherman, I'm a hunter, I'm a hiker. You need a first aid kit for your excursions. He can help you with that. He's got a new shipment of MREs that came in. These are special made with uh, 14 meals in a case instead of the typical 12. Uh, And these were specially made for a government disaster relief agency. It's a week's worth of food at two meals a day with enough calories. So each case is basically one week's worth of food for one person. Okay. Go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus. He'll help uh, guide you through all of these decisions. The shop is open Monday through Saturday across the street from the anti-aircraft gun in downtown Clyde. Also online 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. That's oldgrouch.com. So the Atlantic had a piece uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, called What Does This Man Know That Other Democrats Don't? Talking about North Carolina's own Governor Roy Cooper. He doesn't know why he keeps winning in North Carolina while other Democrats keep losing. He said, quote, I wish there was a secret I could tell you. 
I'm not sure there is. If I had the secret, I'd be out holding seminars, he said. Figuring out why Cooper keeps winning could have potentially huge impacts, uh, or implications rather, for determining whether he's a fluke or a model for Democrats across the South and in other red states. Cooper's races never have become national Democratic causes. He has set no major fundraising records. He's not an otherworldly political talent. That is the truth. And yet his success is already a source of chatter among some political obsessives gaming out the 2024 presidential ticket. Cooper, they say, could offer a compelling balance to Vice President Kamala Harris as a white male Democratic governor of an important swing state. Allies of President Joe Biden says that he's going to be running for a second term, but he's going to be 82 at that point. In the meantime, the seminars on Cooper's secret have already started without him. In late November, the Democratic Governors Association convened a call with political aides uh, to incumbent governors up for re-election next year, and a lot of them in red or in purple states, and they've been watching Cooper's race for pointers. Get this, the presentation was not a dissection of the electorate that revealed the North Carolina team's genius. Instead, the Democratic Governors Association, the DGA, the operatives, they offered some of the most mundane tips in the biz. One piece of advice, make sure voters can see you running a competent and effective government. (laughs) Okay. Amid the pandemic, for example, Cooper took a low-key approach to issuing safety restrictions, calmly explaining the moves during press conferences while avoiding scraps with the Trump White House or other drama. He did not try to mimic New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, whose daily televised briefings fluctuated between sitcom and soap opera and led to accusations that Cuomo was more focused on public relations than pandemic administration. But like none of this... Was Cuomo in, is that a swing state? Is New York a swing state for Cuomo? No. (laughs) Right. But what, what they leave out is two really important things. Number one, North Carolina's history as a ticket splitting state, voting for Democratic governors and Republican presidents. Number one. Number two, not mentioned, media. It's easier to do these types of press conferences during the pandemic when you restrict access by the media and then the media that does get through, they're just so grateful to be, you know, thrown sniffing for a moment that, uh, oh, I'm sorry, asking a question to power um, that they uh, that they don't ask really difficult things. They don't challenge you because they're afraid of not getting called again. They're afraid of getting blacklisted by your comms team. He has gone 16-0 and in primary and general elections. He was a state general assemblyman is what the Atlantic called it, but we don't have general assemblyman. He was a state senator. Um, And then he was the Senate majority leader where he drew gerrymandered maps, by the way. He was attorney general for four terms, and now he's the governor. The mythology around Cooper is that he is some sort of political unicorn and genius while discounting the impact of the circumstances, says Jim Blaine, a longtime aide in the state legislature and now a top Republican consultant in North Carolina. Jim Blaine says, quote, he is an astute careful and talented politician who has had the most valuable thing in politics. And that is absolutely impeccable timing. (laughs) Which is so true. It's worth noting that another Democrat, Cal Cunningham, may well have won the Senate race last year in North Carolina, uh, had an up and for the zipper issues. Even Cooper told me he struggles to understand how tens of thousands of people voted for him to be governor and Donald Trump to be president. He doesn't understand it either. Marshall Cohen, the uh, Democratic governor's political director, says some of Cooper's success, he knows, is rooted in his identity as a white man. 
of course. See, and that may have enabled him to hold on to moderate voters last year who might otherwise have been scared off by trends among Democrats nationally. So, uh, as I understand this line of thinking, according to the Democratic Governors Association political director, Marshall Cohen, Cooper won the racist demographic. (laughs) People, People that would not have voted for him if he was not a white dude. Is That's the... Okay. Um, another factor that may have helped Cooper was uh, him being the attorney general in the HB2 uh, fundraising effort. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They don't mention anything about HB2. No, but that that is one of the big things that did help him. When he was attorney general, HB2 came along, and then he went out and solicited big donors... Right. To back him in his uh, anti HB2 crusade, which he then parlayed into his run, you know, for governor, obviously. And so you make those connections during that campaign. And now you get to tap them for all for all of that money again, all those donations. So that definitely helped him. But that's not mentioned anywhere in the piece, which isn't really that surprising because it's a piece from the Atlantic and they're not here. You know, this isn't somebody who's on the ground here. Um He says many of these campaign ads uh, never air that Cooper actually makes. They apparently record uh, tons of of ads that never made it to air, but they were ready to go during the last election, uh, usually with Cooper speaking directly to the camera, which is kind of funny, too, like as if these attacks would have ever, ever gotten traction in the media. (laughs) So he didn't have to run any of these response ads because nobody ever attacked him in the media. He never had to deal with any of this stuff. So he never had to run his response ads. I guess that's one way to save money, right? That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Remember, uh, head on over to The Pete Callender Show. Subscribe on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. Think about becoming a patron as well. We'll talk with you later and don't break anything while I'm gone. 